see in this passage a snapshot of a great Christian life. And that's going to be what the text says. But what does it mean to Katie Davis or Lloyd Davis or Ron Miller uh, or to Matt Sanford or to uh, uh, Summer or to Debbie or to Russell? Well, I think what it's going to do is teach us some truths that can help all of us improve our Christian lives. We're going to see Paul reflecting on his ministry and talking about the way he thinks and lives. And I think, Elliot, you can learn a lot of truth about the way you ought to think and live as a Christian as we look at that. So that's what we're going to try to do today. But let's pray for uh, teachability to God's Word and also our uh, peace officers, our firefighters, uh, and our active military, as we always like to do. And... Uh, Tell you what, uh, Jeff uh, Skinner, if you would, lead us in prayer in that direction, okay? Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, to uh, kind of get us started here, um, you know, you think about missions as going to a foreign country, but I feel like one of my missions has been uh, to be able to teach a course called Introduction to World Religions at Cameron University. Uh, and typically, a lot of religious studies uh, teachers are, are kind of neutral on everything. They're kind of agnostic or atheist. And so I think it's a, it's kind of a ministry to have a person of faith, uh, teach about the world religions without preaching about it. It's a classroom, not a church, but I'm in the midst of doing that. And this semester, they decided to cram the 16 week religion course into the last eight week, uh, period. They have two eight week semesters and one 16 week semester. Most of us took classes in 16 weeks. So we're cramming this thing. There's a lot of information, but as you interact with college students about religious topics, you find out they, they feel like they've got some better ideas about certain things. So here are five ways the Bible would be different if edited by college students. Instead of fishermen, Peter, James, and John would be professional wrestlers. And if they were writing it, that's what that would look like. The climax of world history would not be called the Battle of Armageddon. But I think this is something that you came up with many years ago. I'm not uh, incorrect, Nicole. Instead, it would be called Final Exam Week. Uh, the second epistle to the Thessalonians would be renamed uh, Paul's second tweet to his peeps in T-Town. That's the kind of thing they would come up with that. The book of Exodus would be replaced with the book of Xbox 360. And then finally, uh, in addition to the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament Gospels would also include the books of Taylor and Tom, that's Taylor Swift and Tom Cruise, and the books of Homer and Ron. <laughs> so, uh, the week before Easter, and boy, you look around and you say, what did I preach on last week? I must, I must have scared people away. I think we talked about the resurrection, didn't we? I mean, I'm not, that's not negotiable. We're going to preach that every week. Uh, but two weeks ago, when we were in our study of Acts, we were in the first 16 verses of chapter 20, and we talked about the, uh, the joys of falling asleep. Ron, did you change that? You changed that, changed that slide, didn't you? We talked about the dangers, the dangers of falling asleep in church. And uh, the story continues. Uh, you know, the third missionary journey of Paul is really Paul leaving the missionary-sending church of Antioch and spending three years in Ephesus. And then revisiting churches he'd started previously, like the one in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Corinth. 
and then going back and going around Ephesus, just barely missing it on purpose too, because he knew if he went there, he'd have to stay for six months, because they really like him and love him and want to talk about all kinds of stuff. So on the way back to Jerusalem, ultimately, because he's been collecting money for the needy, starving Christians in Jerusalem, they're facing intense persecution for their faith. Uh, we're on the back side of the third missionary journey today, and we're in a little place called Miletus, just about 30 miles from Ephesus, and we'll tell you why Paul went there and what he's doing and what he says here to the Ephesian elders, but a slightly different map. Uh, these are the major cities that Paul interacts with during the third missionary journey with an emphasis on which one. He spends most of his time in Ephesus, but he goes to Philippi. What book of the Bible was written to the church in Philippi? Philippians, yeah. What two books of the Bible were written to the people who lived in uh, Thessalonica? First and second what? That's right. That's great. Uh, Paul also wrote two books under inspiration to the church in Corinth. What were they called, Henry? Man, you're going going good. And then he ends up uh, from prison in Rome writing a, a letter to the church in this city. What do you call that? Ephesians, yeah. So here we are. Miletus is down here. And, uh, you know, the text says he, he wants to uh, get to Jerusalem before, before a certain point in time in the calendar. So he meets down here at Miletus. Uh, and that's important because Paul wants to talk to the leaders and have an impact on the church, but he doesn't have enough time to spend six months uh, reminiscing with his good friends. So sometimes you just can't take those phone calls to say you'll know, right? Uh, so we're going to see Paul's farewell to the leaders of Ephesus Bible Fellowship today. And he does a lot of things. He summarizes, anticipates, solemnizes, commands, and trusts, and bids a farewell. But let's look at the first thing he does. Look at verse 17 through 21. And in fact, maybe let's back up for some context. Go back to verse 15. Luke, who's writing this under inspiration, and when he's involved in the action, he uses we instead of they. Sailing from there, Mytilene, we, Luke and Paul and some other men, arrived the following day opposite Kilos, which is an island. And the next day we crossed over to Samos. And the next day we came to Miletus. That's where we're going to end up today. That's where we're going to be all day today, Michelle. For Paul had decided to sail around just past 30 miles south of Ephesus. So he would not have to spend a lot of time in that region. Asia was the region Ephesus was located in. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Uh, from Miletus, while he's there, he sent word 30 miles away back to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. When you read about leaders in the New Testament church, you always have plural leaders in singular churches. And I'm convinced that's for a reason, because you don't want one person, even a pastor or even an esteemed elder or deacon or somebody, to have ultimate control over the church, because we all have sin natures and we all have blind spots and we all have kind of uh, pet peeves that maybe are stricter than scripture. So you always have the elders of the church singular. And so he calls the elders of the church in Ephesus. I keep reading. And when they had come to him, he probably sent a messenger one day and it took him a day to get ready. And then they came down the next day and then they met uh, probably the full day the next day. So something like that. Uh, they didn't have tweeting or texting, as you know. Uh, when they had come to him, the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus, he said, you yourselves know from the first day 
during this third missionary journey that I came to your region, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord. He sees himself primarily as a servant of the Lord. No matter what you do for people, you're serving the Lord. Uh, Howard Hendricks used to tell us, uh, when you get in the pastorate, you better get in control of your schedule because somebody else will, and they may not have God's priority for your life. So you have to kind of organize under that. But he's, he realizes as he interacts with people, he's ultimately serving the Lord with all humility. He never got over the fact he was just a sinner saved by grace. And in fact, I think the older he got, the more he hated the fact that for years he had persecuted Christians. He'd watched Stephen being stoned and was hardly in agreement with that. So those things never kind of left him and it gave him a, a profound appreciation for his salvation. Uh, I met Jean Shallot about a year after she came to faith when I moved here in 88. And, uh, you know, we, we can forget she kind of had, she was kind of wild and crazy for a long time in her life and was far away from God. Many people in her family were Christians. She didn't even want to talk to them for years at a time. And I think she's the type of person that never has totally gotten over how great salvation by grace is. Sometimes the more we get saved from, the more we appreciate it, right? Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with or in a genitive of sphere, with within the sphere of trials, troubles, which came upon me. Whoever is preaching, if you have enough faith, you're not going to have enough problems, hasn't read the New Testament very carefully at all. And in fact, in some cases, the more faith you've got, the more problems you're going to have when you're facing active persecution. Can you say ISIS? That kind of thing. Here it's plots of Jewish opponents who didn't much like Paul competing for their share of the religion business, so to speak. That's the way they saw it, not the way he sees it. Uh, how I did not shrink despite the fact that I was under attack and possibly uh, physical attack. Even in the face of that, I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly, school of Tyrannus for several hours a day, we were told earlier during that three-year period, and also from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, anybody who would listen, anybody who might be open to the gospel and or to the word of God, uh, of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's kind of summarizing his ministry, and it's obvious that these elders who come up to interact with him have been part of the church from fairly early on, or maybe even before Paul got there. There was apparently a small church there when Paul got there, so you already got some believers that are meeting and some leaders, and these leaders know Paul, and uh, you know they should respect what he's doing, but sometimes you got to remind people how great you are because they tend to forget, right? Uh, before I forget this, notice back in verse 17, uh, these leaders are referred to as elders. You know, you're supposed to respect your elders, kids. You hear that? I don't think we teach the culture that anymore because the older I get, the less respect I, I get at convenience stores, just so you'll know. Uh, but this is strange. But uh, uh, there are two basic words for this same office in the church. In verse 17, we talk about presbyteroi. That's the plural of presbyteros, which means older man. That's literally what it means. But that term emphasizes the authority of people in that office. And today, you know, you can have uh, in the Navy, your sister and brother-in-law, you know, were Naval Academy graduates, and it's possible that they might have served on a ship or served in a base with uh, a commanding officer who's 38 years old or 40 years old, which to many of us is not an old man, but all of the uh, 
uh, enlisted personnel would have referred to that person as the old man. I guess nowadays as the old woman, if you had a, a woman in that post, just to talk about their authority. So you have two basic terms, presbyteros, presbyteroi plural here, for the authority of elders. Elders are over the functioning, all the functioning, spiritual and physical, of the local church. And then in verse 28, notice, be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's a different term. Overseers is also used for people in this office. That's the word, interestingly enough, episkopoi, plural here, episkopos, singular. And that means to oversee, to watch. Uh, kind of like mom runs the roost, you know, as, as the kids kind of do their things. I mean, golly, you look at Sonia, she's got uh, a lot of balls in the air, and she's also memorizing the book of Philippians this this year. But uh, she was telling me, in addition to taking care of the three kids, the kids also hold her accountable, accountable for memorizing the book of Philippians. So it's kind of you've always got three people watching you. So it's interesting, you got two words for one office, and Paul's interacting or briefing these leaders because he's pretty certain he'll never see them again on earth. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have a terminal disease, and they don't either. But he's going on a very dangerous trip to Jerusalem, not sure how it's going to work out. And as far as the New Testament uh, records uh, states, he never sees them again. You can tell there's a poignancy here as he looks at these guys and says, let me remind you kind of the way I did my thing. It should be a good example for you. And now let's... Continue on. Let's talk about some other things. Now he moves from summarizing his past ministry to anticipating his future ministry in Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem to take money, a financial gift, a fairly large financial gift, to the suffering saints there. I mean, that was kind of the crucible of persecution from the very get-go. I mean, we see Stephen martyred. We see James the Apostle slaughtered in Jerusalem. Very dangerous place for the church to exist, but it continued to shine its light. And look at verse 22 through 24. He anticipates going to Jerusalem. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I know I'm going. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I do know it's dangerous. The idea that the will of God is always easy, convenient, simple, and pain-free is not true, cannot be true. We live in a fallen world. It's broken. Bad things happen to good people. Get over it and commit to serving uh, God res- re- despite that kind of fact. That's just there. But I do know, he says in verse 23, the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city. Next week we'll see kind of how that worked. Saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So I'm going to Jerusalem with the best of intentions, with love in my heart, Song in my heart, money for the church, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not going to end well. This is what God wants me to do, but it's going to be tough. Uh, verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. My life on earth is just uh, uh, at God's disposal. I will do his will to the best of my ability as long as I'm able to do it, uh, so that I may finish my course. He thought of his life as kind of a race around a cross-country track. And then you get to go to heaven. Uh, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to, ta- to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Wow, very poignant. He's, he's sure he's not going to see these guys again on earth. He's not quite sure he's going to survive his experience in Jerusalem. But he's going to do it because he's convinced he's supposed to do it. And so 
you know, people talk a lot about peer pressure, like you guys are the first generation to have peer pressure. Hey, as you live your lives, you've got to do the right thing, even if it's not going to make you popular with the, with the uh, popular kids, even with the best-looking cheerleader. You've got to kind of do the right thing regardless of the price. That's true commitment. If you only do, if you're only committed when it's convenient, you're not committed. If you're only committed when it's easy, you're not committed. You're kidding yourself. There's no commitment when you stop when it gets hard, when it's difficult, when you don't have all the answers, right? Uh, again, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, uh, go back to chapter 19, verse 21. We saw this first come up back there, whereas he's Finishing his three years in Ephesus during the third missionary journey, uh, we read this. Uh, now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit. This is of God for him to go. He's not out of the will of God in doing this at all. Purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through northern Greece and southern Greece, seeing the folks there. And then after that, Lord willing, if I'm still alive, I want to go to Rome, if at all possible. That's his ultimate uh, concept. That's his ultimate destination. Now, what does that look like on a map? Well, uh, he's been in Ephesus for three years, and then he went to Macedonia and Achaia, and now he's back just south of Ephesus. That's kind of a long distance for 30 miles, but that's about kind of what it is. So he's in Miletus talking to the guys in Ephesus, and where's he going to go? Where's his next defini- definition, next destination? Down here to Jerusalem. That's where he's headed uh, for the reasons we've already said. But ultimately, if he's able, he'd like to go to Rome, which is just off the map. There's somebody who teaches part-time at Cameron that says, if you have a visual aid and you have to say, I know you can't see this, but by definition, that is what we call a bad visual aid. So... uh I just like to show examples of things you're not supposed to do so you can learn good lessons from that. So that's, that's all good. Uh, but again, this Pollyanna thing that if you're right in the center of God's will, it's going to be easy and fun and happy and everybody's going to pat you on the head and you're not going to be problems, flies in the face of this snapshot of a great Christian life. Don't buy into that garbage. But you can sell a lot of books to people in their 20s and 30s who actually believe that until a really big one hits them and then they lose their faith because they had an you know, improper object of their faith, and it's not good. Uh, verse 25 through 27, he summarizes, anticipates. Now he solemnizes his responsibility as a minister. Now it's easy to put, uh, it's easy for Julie Demerson to put Paul, at least for me, put Paul kind of on a, a pedestal and say he's so, such a great Christian, such an amazing Christian, there's no way I can compare myself to him. And yet I think he would say, no, you shouldn't do that. You know, I've had certain gifts and certain opportunities maybe you don't get, like, Getting to write 13 New Testament books, 13 out of 27, ain't bad. <laughs> you know, that's pretty good. That's almost 500 if you're baseball hitting terms. Uh, but I think he would say, hey, all God asks you to do is use your opportunities and your gifts and whatever space in history you're occupying to live faithfully, Henry, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Right? You processing all this? And now, behold, I know that all of you, he's looking at the, he's looking at Homer, he's looking at Ron, he's looking at David Demers, and looking at the elders. Uh, I'm just going to preach through it. I'm just going to ignore it. <laughs> I heard it, you know. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God 
will no longer see my face. As far as I know, I have no plans to come back, and I might not even survive Jerusalem. So I don't think I'm going to see you again on planet Earth in physical bodies. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I did everything I could do. I didn't do everything that is humanly possible to do, because nobody can do that. But I did all I could do to prepare you to carry on and, and to get the gospel going in, in, in the city of Ephesus and the environs. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose, uh, King James says, the whole counsel of God. I gave you everything I had. I withheld nothing. If I didn't do enough, I'm sorry, but I tried the best I could. Uh, you know, I, I think he says there, and this is good for a minister, because you do everything you can that you feel like you should do, but it never pleases everybody because you didn't show up at their thing or couldn't stay as long as they wanted you to stay or whatever. Uh, and and you know that, and you do the best you can. But the bottom line is, hey, you know what? I realize you're very special. And you know what, Summer? You really are special, and you're important. But so is everybody else in the room, okay? So kind of get over it, right? That's the old joke. And we need to treat people as very special because they're in the image of God. Even unsaved people have the image of God marred by the fall, but it's in there, right? Uh The church especially is the object of God's special salvific love. We should... Even the ones that are uh, hard to understand and goofy and younger and older or different than you, and they're all different. But the bottom line is, for ministers, uh, rather than entertaining you or meeting all your expectations, I think all we can really do ultimately is declare to you the whole counsel of God. You know, do the best we can. And uh, I probably should have started Jude earlier. I mean, I've only been here 28 years. If I'd started it when I got here, we might be done by now. But... Uh, yeah, that was one we had missed, but uh, we're trying to hit all the bases here. Uh, but that's pretty poignant for a minister. I think uh, uh, a lot of times when ministers resign, they tend to go to this passage because he, he had that kind of milieu about it, you know, like, boom, this is the last time I'm going to see you, so that's it. But I always feel like, uh, you know, you never know. You know, every I always feel like uh, every Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday for me because, you know, I might not be here next week. You don't, you don't know. Things happen. I might get hit by a bus or something. Yeah, you just never know. Uh, but, uh, Paul really takes this thing seriously and he really has kind of, uh, purpose in mind. Uh, I don't have grandiose goals for TBF beyond let's just be a healthy church and stay consistent on the basics and see what happens. And, uh, that's, that's just the way I think. Now, I'm not rich or famous, so you might not want to go by that, but that's kind of the way I operate. Now, look at verse 28 through 31. Uh, he summarized, anticipated, solemnizes. Now he's going to command the Ephesian elders to do one thing, to defend the church. Ken's a basketball coach. Uh, the number one thing you got to do in basketball is defend your goal, right? But you also have to score some points occasionally. Like OSU this year, they ended up with a really good defense. But they couldn't score any points. You know, so at some point, I mean, it's very seldom you're going to have a one-to-nothing basketball game. I mean, you you got to score more points than the other team, but... Defense is very important. Uh, look at what he says here in verse 28 through 31. This is some of my famous favorite stuff in the whole book of Acts. He says to the elders as the overseers, right, and as the authority figures that only make the, make the decisions uh, for policy, be on guard, number one, for yourselves. Don't just protect the flock. you got to be believing and behaving the way you're supposed to believe and behave first, right? Because that's ultimately all you can control. And for all the flock... Now, you know, people think it's so wonderful that Christians are considered to be like sheep. 
I've, you know, I've never been around sheep very much, but I've been told they stink, they're kind of nasty, uh, and they'll bite you if you're not looking. So, Hannah, keep that in mind, okay? When I call you a sheep, uh, sometimes I refer to, uh, uh, I won't go into that, but I'll get in trouble. But uh, I was going to tell you a joke about Debbie, but I thought, you know, the last three of those I've done lately haven't worked so well. So let's just say I haven't had any lunch for like three weeks. So you see what I'm No, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, no, Debbie whipped up a wonderful spaghetti. We have a traditional American spaghetti, no cheese, no spiciness in the spaghetti for me uh, on Easter Sunday after we got home. But what was really fun was on Saturday night, uh, it was kind of a risky thing. Because we had, uh, you know, we had everybody here last Saturday night. We had Jonathan and both both sets of twins, and Candace, and Kristen, and Jamie, and Cooper, and Peter. I remember everybody's name, which doesn't happen very often. And so we took them to the catch. We took them to the catch. Zane, you know about the catch. You like the catch? Yeah, yeah, it's good, isn't it? Uh, but it was a little risky because we've got vegetarians, we've got Presbyterian. Now there aren't any Presbyterians, but. Uh, <laughs> We had vegetarians, we had people who are very, kind of pickier than I am in some ways, but everybody loved it. It was a good night at the catch, and so that was a lot of fun. But uh, I don't know if they did this because uh, of our potential for mayhem, but in the back, of when you go in the catch, the restroom, the the dining area is kind of an area there by the buffet, but there's also like, uh, as you go to the uh, north, like two separate smaller rooms you can eat in, well, they ushered us into one of those empty rooms, I think, to keep us away from the rest of the patrons because they could see what those kids, it was going to look like World War III had been fought uh, on the floor. And we we watched them like a hawk, and I thought, man, they haven't made any messes. And when we left, I looked back, and oh, my goodness, there was all kinds of stuff on the floor. So if you hear a rumor that the pastor at Tangle Bible Fellowship can't control his grandkids, that's not a rumor. That's a fact. <laughs> Just so you'll know. Okay. That, that happened, yeah. But, but it worked out great. It was a lot of fun. So it says, uh, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, for the sheep, the, the believers in the church there, among, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Okay? Homer and Ron and David and the other elders are overseers. Uh, they oversee the whole operation, and rather than coming to an elders meeting and pushing their agenda or their preferences, they got to think, what's going to work for best for us as a group uh, based on our... Uh, uh, you know, mission statement and what we're supposed to be doing here. That's what you got to think. So it's it's kind of like uh, the Jewish people, you know, are God's chosen people in a sense, but historically they've correctly seen that not as a privilege but as an obligation, right? Because through you all the nations are going to be blessed. So that was the way that was directed, not because you, you're a uniquely special, although God has a special purpose for them and for us in different ways, but it's more of an obligation than a privilege. Uh, to be in that kind of a role. So shepherd the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood, because I know that after I leave you, and I don't think I'm coming back as far as I know, as he just said, savage wolves. What do, how do wolves and sheep interact? Not good, and the sheeps lose every time. They, it's, they never win. They always get ripped up by the wolves. Will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Uh and he's talking about like outside false teachers, and then from among your own selves, some people in the church, some of whom may even be believers, will get up on some doctrinal tangent or some moral error and push it. And I, I always love the wording on this. Watch this. Even from among your own selves. Now, I, I know you can have people in church who aren't really believers. I totally understand that. There may be some here today. 
But I think in general, when Paul knows these people, he realizes most of them are believers, at least as far as he can tell. And so some of these people can get really messed up morally or doctrinally and have a bad impact on the church. Uh, Some of these people from within the church will say perverse things, things that don't line up with Scripture, to draw away disciples after themselves. I've always been uh, hit by that kind of turn of the phrase because I can remember uh, dental school, early seminary, the evangelicalism, at least in Texas, had this thing where every Christian was supposed to be discipling at least one other person and so I'm going to disciple Zach, and Zach's my disciple. He's my disciple. You've got to have at least one person, one notch on your belt. You're discipling somebody, and when you're done, they're supposed to be just like you. And I thought, who'd want to be just like me? <laughs> I mean, I, and I kind of, you know, started reading people who kind of understood the New Testament and said, no, we're not supposed to be making disciples of one another. We're supposed to be making disciples of somebody, just one person. Dale's supposed to be a disciple of Jesus helping catalyze other people's discipleship, believers' discipleship of Jesus, not discipleship of Dale or Brad or Dallas Seminary, anything like that. But notice, Paul describes these in-house false teachers he anticipates will arise. They'll be speaking perverse things, things you haven't heard before. Uh, just because something's new doesn't mean it's good, especially if it doesn't line with Scripture. But their goal is to draw away disciples after themselves. They're trying to make disciples of uh Joe or Bill or Jim or whomever, and Joe, don't, no offense, I didn't mean you personally, but just a common name. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each other with tears. And uh, I didn't have to make tents at night, but there are a lot of times I, I can't sleep at night, and I'll wake up, now I've got a computer, I can bang away and look, look at all these things online. And, uh, you know, I, a lot of times I'm working at three o'clock in the morning, two four o'clock in the morning. I know, I know. We've got a couple of neighbors who kind of watch. I'm not. I am paranoid, but I do have some real enemies, you know. And I've got neighbors that like watch everything I do. I had, I was pushing a lawnmower once and it was making a funny noise, and a guy from Band of Block came down and said, "Hey, your ne- your your lawnmower's making a funny noise." I said, "Yeah, I know." I just kept pushing. He said, "No, you gotta you gotta fix it. Me fix it? You know, you want to? It's gotta be the air filter." So he's making. I'm not making this up. And I actually burned my finger trying to take this air filter off while he watched me. And I said, no, I don't think it's a problem. It's like brand new alarm I said, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's not, it's not messed up. Okay. Go ahead. You, you know, carry on is kind of what he did and walked away. This is my neighbor. Okay. So I, I know I, when we, and when I wake up, uh, this morning you want to know it, but, uh, I wish I had a solid door because we've got a little, little windows in our door. So I know when I go in the living room, I turn that light on. So I can turn my computer on. I know the guy across the street's watching me. Am I paranoid or whatever? But, but I, I know that, you know, and, and I, it's amazing too, because sometimes it's like the spirit really gets cranking in the middle of the night. You see, you see things you didn't see in scripture before. So I don't want to compare myself to Paul in that way. But I, I know, you know, when you're a shepherd, just never, you never stop thinking. You never stop. Like maybe if we did this, or maybe I should pray more about that, or do this other thing, or go over here, or whatever. So I know what that means, and he says, hey, summing up his ministry in Ephesus during third missionary journey, verse 31, uh, just be on the alert, be aware there are some people who don't like us and are going to try to redefine or fuzz up Christianity so it won't be what it really is, even though it may draw a bigger crowd once you do that. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, literally, for a period of three years. So he's rounding that off. When we say Paul had a ministry of how many years in Ephesus? The third missionary journey, we get that number from here. According to Honer, it's like two years and 11 months, but he's rounding that off. Uh, you know, 
So he's commanding the elders to defend the faith. And, and I have found, I remember the first biology class I, in college I took with a professor, and I'm a biology major going to dental school. Uh, the professor was the guy who wrote the textbook. And I thought that was so cool, but just amazing to have the guy who wrote the book teaching the book to a hundred of us in a biology class. I thought it was incredible. And, you know, for a long time I was just impressed with anybody who had a name on a book or something. And then you go to seminary and you meet a lot of these people who write, write books and you find out they're just like we are. Some of them are really good and some of them are a little bit not so good and some of them have strengths in areas and some of them have weaknesses in other areas and they don't know everything about everything. You find out people who write books don't know everything about everything. So you start reading everything with cautious discernment, including the latest uh, thing that your favorite media preacher just said. So just because somebody says something new in a book, on a DVD, or an Internet site, doesn't mean TBF has to totally change you know, everything we've stood for for 40 years just to, to line it up with what X said last week, and he may change it next week. So he's just warning them about the danger of false teachers in and out of church circles who will try to change Christianity into something it's not. And I think that's important uh, to, to uh, keep in mind for all of us, but especially those of us who are in leadership in the church. Look at verse 32 through 35 uh, as he winds down this farewell to his friends and leaders of the church in Ephesus. He says this, And now, in light of the fact I'm out of here and probably won't see you again this side of heaven, I commend you to God. Okay, I, I'm not God. I, I can only be one place at one time. I can't do everything for everybody every time he's saying, I did everything I could, best I could. That's all I can do. But now I commend you to God. I'm gone. You can't have your faith in me anymore. And to the word of his grace. Hey, how's God going to speak to you? Through the word of his grace. Which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Uh, inheritance is an Old Testament concept brought into the new in Physical families in the Old Testament, Sharon, all the sons were heirs, but some sons were special heirs. Typically, the firstborn son was a double heir, but that's at the prerogative of the father. He can choose. So, you know, all Christians, believers, New Testament believers, have an inheritance in heaven, but some will have extra stuff, like uh, uh, the firstborn son or the son who was the most virtuous, and we talk about levels of reward commendation, so he's saying, Hang in there, hold on to the uh, essentials of the faith, and as you do that, you're only going to be stockpiling your heavenly inheritance. And then he says, just remember, this isn't about you having the fanciest house or the best car or the best chariot or the best hut or whatever it was in that culture. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered my own needs. He was a bivocational minister, especially during the first phase when he's doing evangelism. Uh, the men who were with me, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, and I've got a red letter edition of the New Testament here, and it's in red. Those are the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And as I've said several times, you're not going to find that quote in Matthew or Mark or Luke or in John. Most of the times when you're quoting Jesus, you're quoting Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Right? But this is uh, one of those sayings of Jesus that was just circulating at the time, just in the memory of some of the hearers. That's called oral tradition. There's nothing wrong with oral tradition. Uh, there's been a lot written about George Washington, 
but I'm sure that a lot of his soldiers or a lot of people on his staff uh, heard and had a lot of memories that didn't make any of the history books that are gone. But for a generation or so, that circulated among just orally among uh, people that interact with the guy with the first-hand experience or the guy with the first-hand experience. So you're not going to find this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. This is just something that Paul knows Jesus said based on historical memory. And I think uh, we're going to learn a lot of stuff like that when we get to heaven. In addition to why this happened, why that happened, show me how the pieces fit, Lord, to the extent we're able to ask questions like that. Maybe we don't need to. Maybe we just understand it. You're going to, you know, James all the time will say, hey, when we get to heaven, we need to ask you know, Peter this or Paul that, something that happens that's not exactly answered. But uh, I love that quote, and I cite that a lot because I do think that uh, one of the things that has made Tanglewood Bible Fellowship great for 40 years is just there's been a great spirit and heart of generosity in a large percentage of the group that God allows to be here for any length of time. And it changes, you know. Uh, but I think this has been a group that's been generous financially for sure. I mean, uh, look, we have just a wonderful facility. I just uh, I love it. Um, I wish it was just a little bit bigger, but, you know, if we could push that wall out, it would be nice. But uh, sometimes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think that's one of the things that's really made this thing tick, uh, not necessarily the Bible teachers, but the generosity of the people uh, with their time, talents, and treasures. Uh, and when I see people that are really generous, and most of them around here, some big things they've done, you know, they keep it way under the radar, and nobody knows but God and them and Ron Miller. Uh, not even the recipient knows, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, when I see that, and, uh, you know, it, it's a real encouragement, uh, no matter who is on the recipient end of it. But, uh, you know, I crave that experience for everybody, because I really do think you can live your life like this, or you live your life like this. You, you know? Now, you live like, the, like this, you're going to get 150 people wanting you to do 157 things, and you can only do 57 things a day, halfway decent, and please your wife and the Lord, and that's all that matters, you know. So, you, you still, some people are going to think you're like this, even when you're, you're just giving everything you've got, you know, and you're almost out of gas. But I think there's a lot of joy in being a generous person. And I think a lot of people that have... Uh, 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 unhappiness in life, this chronic unhappiness, they're just kind of shrunk up, they're really tight, they're holding on to everything, clutching everything they've, they've got and want more, and they're just never satisfied because they're, they're takers and not givers. And I, you need a balance, of course, and some of you, you know, are so generous, you'd, you'd literally give somebody the shirt off your back, and at some point you gotta stop. Cause you got that mole on the back that I don't wanna look at when I'm preaching. It's just to distract me, nothing else. Just so you'll know. But yeah, this is what Jesus said, and it's really true. I mean, it's very uh, psychologically very uh, valid as well. Not that I need that, but it's kind of nice to know that it's perfectly consistent with the way we're wired. So, you know, rather than looking around and saying, what's everybody doing for me? Occasionally you ought to be thinking about, you know, how can I be a better giver? And that, that in most churches, that's code word for put more on the plate. You realize that. In most churches... Be a bigger giver, be a better better giver means put more on the plate. You're not putting enough on the plate. Well, we don't pass a plate. Now, if you want to put money in the box, I personally appreciate it greatly, I know. But it's more about just an attitude of how can I uh, build into people's lives. You can't do everything for everybody that they want you to do, but you can always uh, probably improve your serve. 
In fact, Chuck Swindoll, when you think of improving your serve, you think of a guy throwing a tennis ball, you know, and hitting it. But uh, Swindoll had a book several years ago now called Improving Your Serve, and that should be kind of one of our goals constantly as a Christian. Uh, Gene, we're talking about uh, something Jesus said that's not found in the four Gospels. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You agree with that? You better. I was bragging on you earlier. Uh, so, and uh, Gene's, a, Gene's a big giver. Not necessarily... Uh, she didn't give a million dollars a year to the church, although I wish she would. You know, it'd be nice. But uh, she's just a very, yeah, she's a very giving person. Uh, look at the last three verses, uh, kind of a separate category. Uh, Paul bids his battle buddies a fond and final, quote-unquote. It's never final. He knows he's going to see them in the future forever, but he means on earth in the present status quo. We're not going to see each other again in all probability and as far as we know, the New Testament never has Paul back in Ephesus. I mean, it never does. That doesn't mean he couldn't have gone there because Paul does some things after his Roman imprisonment that aren't recorded in Scripture. So it's not impossible, but I don't think it happened. When he had said these things, all these things, especially the fact he's not coming back to Ephesus as far as he knows, and he could be hurt, imprisoned, if not killed, in Jerusalem. And in fact, he's going to get hurt and imprisoned and held up in Jerusalem and Caesarea and go to Rome and wait two years there, and that's how the book of Acts ends, in fact. But when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Um, one commentator pointed out, he analyzed all of the references to prayer posture in Scripture, and he said most of prayer in Scripture is done standing up. Not everybody always kneels when they pray, but sometimes in public occasions like this, it makes a lot of sense, just in a sense of humility, seeking the Lord, uh, to, to kneel, so it's not necessary to kneel. No posture is necessarily more spiritual than another, especially if you think it is. If you're trying to impress people with your postures, that's a bad good work. But this is very appropriate here for sure. And they began to weep aloud, embracing Paul and kissing him on the cheek. That's like patting him on the, on the back and shaking his hand in our culture. Grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that he would not, uh, that they would not see his face again. And then they walk into the ship, and he gets on the ship, and the story continues. And we'll see what happens with that next time. So he bids his battle buddies a fond farewell, and realizing this is probably the last time he's going to see them. Here's the rest of the story. Go to Revelation chapter 2. As you know, Revelation 2 and 3 has the Lord Jesus interacting with seven churches and talking about the things they're doing right and trying to help them correct the things they're doing wrong. And the very first of those seven churches is the church in Ephesus. And he's talking to the elders in Ephesus. Now, he's talking to them in April of 57 A.D. This uh, interaction between Jesus through John to the church in Ephesus is more like 96 A.D. So it's several decades later. But here's what we read. To the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write this. The one, Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, those represent the seven churches he's talking to. One, uh, the stars are actually the, the uh, messengers, actually, of the seven churches, the pastors. And the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, those represent the seven churches. I know your deeds. I know you guys are still uh, doing a lot of good stuff in your world, in your toil, in your perseverance, and you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put them to the test, those who call themselves apostles and are not, and he found it to be false. That's exactly what Paul told him to do. So, you know, whatever it was, 57 years later, they're still doing that. Or 39 years later, I should say. 
And you have perseverance. You've been doing it for my sake. You've not grown weary doing the right thing. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. Now, a lot of people read that. You've lost your first love. If you lose something, you're a victim. You can't necessarily get it back. If you leave something, yesterday afternoon when I left the church, I left my phone on my desk. I got all the way to the hospital, realized I didn't have my phone, so I turned around and came back. I didn't lose my phone. I left my phone. I knew where it was. I went back and got it. That's really important. You've left your first love. People say, first love for what? First Baptists will say, Baptists will say, evangelism. They've lost their love for evangelism because Baptists love evangelism. And we all should love it, right? Uh, Dallas Seminary types, they lost their love for Bible study. You know, I think they've lost their love for the Lord and it's made doing Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism kind of just go by the numbers, cookbook, go by, go by rote, you know, kind of just kind of do it, but just crank it out, you know, verbatim. Therefore, because you've left your first love for me as the motivator for everything, he gives them a three-step prescription. This is the church in Ephesus, uh, 39 years after Paul had talked to him in Acts. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen. Remember the way it was when you were abiding in me and loving me and coming to church because you loved me, not coming to church because you signed up to do something and you really don't want to be there, but you're doing it anyway. Repent. What does repent mean? Metanao, change your mind. Change your mind about where you are now. You're stinking thinking. You can't think like that. I, I don't accept that. Uh, that's not good, good works. So remember, repent, and redo. Keep the R's going. Do the deeds you did at first the way you did them. You know? Be uh, abiding in Christ so that when you share the faith or you come to church or you teach Sunday school, you're excited about doing it, you realize you're serving the Lord and others, and not everybody else may pat you on the head for how great you are, but just do it for the right reasons. And hang in there and do it the right right thing the right way. So go back to Acts and we'll conclude. It's interesting to kind of see what Paul says to them and urges them to do and to be, and to see that a lot of what he said was being done 39 years later, but unfortunately they were kind of going through it mechanically. And this is a relational thing. We don't focus on rules. We focus on a ruler who's first our Savior. We don't focus on those things that are, so important, Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism, just as things to do and check off. I did all those on Sunday, so I'm good. We do them as an expression of our love and dedication and devotion to Jesus Christ. Then they're significant. One more thing before I stop. As I look at Paul's life, and we're saying this is a, a, a life, a great example of a life well lived, you know. It's kind of a something we ought to focus on. It's a snapshot of a great Christian life. Uh, I just see consistency in Paul's life. He's just consistent. He says, you know, when I came, I said I'd do this, and I did that, and now I'm doing this, and it's the same thing, and I'm doing the same thing, and I just keep doing it until I'm going to get it right kind of thing. And I think that's very important. As I say in the handout, you know, if consistency was easy, everybody would be consistent. Uh, you know, you, you've done this, I've done this for, what, uh, 28 years here and six and a half years in Shreveport, and you think you've heard every possible excuse, and every time you're sure you've heard every possible excuse, uh, you hear a new one, you know. And, and that's just at Cameron. <laughs> you think you've heard all the excuses and, and you can't. So uh, people find it hard to be consistent, but I think that's the only thing that really counts. You know, you got to kind of keep it real and be consistent. You ought to be the same person uh, in church that you are at home and on business trips and all that at school, et cetera. Uh, I know Hannah and I were talking about that, but as she got baptized, we're talking about some of the things, some of the way people talk at the middle school and the way they live their lives in middle school. And I said, man, and, and she just looked at me, and it just very, she said, 
it's terrible. Just, and I thought, I mean, just, it's terrible. I thought, yeah, you know, here's a really bright sixth grade girl excited about her faith. Uh, not being self-righteous, but I brought it up. I said, how about this? And she said, yeah, it's terrible. I said, yeah, I'm sure it is. And it's, it's gonna, it's terrible. It's gonna get worse too. But you can be consistent anyway. Uh, if you want to be better than average than anything, including Christian life, you gotta do certain things average people sit, simply won't take the time and make the effort to do. So, Clay and Henry, I know your parents want you to have integrity and be consistent. And some of that is being imposed because they're trying to discipline and train you to get that. You are so lucky. And I don't even believe in luck. There's no such thing as luck. But you're still lucky to have that kind of input. And you're going to grow up, turn around and say, man, I'm so fortunate I had that kind of input. So Paul's looking uh, at his life and his ministry very reflectively. And we see in this snapshot of a great Christian life a lot of great principles we can apply in ours. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us not to be too intimidated by Paul's greatness as an apostle that we not be able to connect dots between his example and what you want us to be and to do, especially being centered on the person of Christ as believers, abiding in him, and then doing all we can do within godly boundaries and circles of responsibility, but really seeking to be givers, not just takers, seeking to be consistent and just day after day after day doing the right things for the right reasons. Uh, for a lot of us, maybe we've been up and down or inconsistent. I pray you convict us and then empower us and equip us to start anew, get back on the wagon where we fell off. And I pray it will start with us being centered on Paul's Savior and our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name for his glory. Amen.